Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Is the Amazonian brew ayahuasca a potential replacement for a therapist? To many people, that idea that taking a psychedelic substance could possibly be more effective at addressing deep, personal, and emotional issues than committing to therapy with a trained, medically grounded, licensed professional is a kind of heresy, a delusional fantasy. But it's common to hear people who drink ayahuasca describe it as more effective than 10 years of psychotherapy. So, what's going on here? People also regularly report that when they drink ayahuasca, they hear voices. They encounter an intelligence outside of themselves, a consciousness with a point of view that addresses them, explains things, gives them guidance, and helps them to heal. And while the peer-reviewed research is still in early stages, Anecdotal evidence is mounting that the vine of the soul, as it's called, is an effective treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder with a high success rate and that it can also help addicts beat their addiction. At the heart of the matter, quite literally, is this question. Can a profound mystical experience, which ayahuasca and other psychedelics invite, heal trauma and instill a lifelong reset towards a more compassionate and loving way of being in the world? In today's episode, I explore this territory with Rachel Harris, a psychologist with 35 years in private practice and an academic researcher who has received a new Investigators Award from the National Institutes of Health. She's the author of over 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals and has worked as a psychological consultant to Fortune 500 companies. She's also the author of the recent book, Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety. In the book, Rachel presents the findings of an in-depth research study she led into the effects of ayahuasca on the psychological health of people who have used it. It's the largest study of ayahuasca use in North America to date, and what she found is fascinating. The book also recounts Rachel's own use of ayahuasca to heal deep family trauma and presents her story so it can be an example to others. As we discuss, plant spirit medicine can take you places and open doorways that the trained therapist would never reach. But therapy also offers opportunities for healing that entheogenic experiences often overlook or ignore. We live in a remarkable time when the best of Western science can be paired with the wisdom of traditional indigenous spiritual practices, and something new is being created. It's a powerful and exciting process that's taking place, and we're all part of it. One of the hazards of being an adult in the world is having your back go out. I have a tricky back, and occasionally it does pop and the pain is not fun. In those situations, you've just got to rest and eventually the inflammation will go down. But one of the lucky things about being part of a store that sells herbal remedies like the Alchemist Kitchen is that there's stuff you can find on the shelves when you need it. 
Evolver is the proud parent of the Alchemist Kitchen, which we describe as a botanical dispensary devoted to the power of plants. Under our own label, Plant Alchemy, we produce a line of CBD products, including an organic CBD balm. And I'll tell you, applying CBD balm topically on the area of my back that was throbbing the most really did cut the pain and quickly. I felt the difference in just a few minutes. CBD, as you probably know, is a remarkable component of the cannabis plant that can have profound effects on your health. Its clinical name is cannabidiol, and unlike THC, the more famous part of the cannabis plant, CBD does not get you high. But it does have many medical benefits, which are being documented in research labs around the world. People are taking CBD for a wide range of conditions, including chronic pain, Crohn's disease, diabetes, anxiety, rheumatoid arthritis, and more. It comes in a variety of forms, including oil that you can take with a dropper or as a vape, or as a topical salve, which is how I've used it for my back. Plant Alchemy CBD is made to be sold in New York City, where cannabis is not yet legal, so it has almost no THC, less than 0.03%, which is the legal limit. You won't get a buzz, but you will get real CBD benefits. Our Plant Alchemy CBD is the highest quality CBD you can get, made from organically and sustainably grown hemp, using living soil organic principles and produced in a state-of-the-art laboratory, free of any residual solvents for the purest oil possible. You can buy Plant Alchemy CBD Balm and our other CBD products online at thealchemistkitchen.com. Thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. Or if you're in New York, come by our space at 21 East 1st Street between 2nd Avenue and the Bowery in Lower Manhattan. In the shop, mention you heard about The Alchemist Kitchen on the Evolver podcast and get 10% off any herbal remedy. Rachel, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Ken. What inspired you to write this book? This research was such a personal mission. I mean, I I met you at the very beginning of it when I was collecting data. And, um, you know, that was almost a decade ago now. This has been, I mean, I've dedicated my my, my uh, 60s, basically, to this project. And, um, it, you know, I don't really know how to make sense of this, but I came out of a couple of ayahuasca ceremonies and really felt called to do research that I knew how to do as both a, a researcher um, and statistician and clinician, someone who'd spent really a lifetime doing psychotherapy. So it was that combination and that approach. And uh, the the most important aspect of the book that I still don't really understand was literally the title, Listening to Ayahuasca, the fact that I heard a voice. And I still, I continue to struggle with this in terms of what does this really mean? Is this really an external voice? I know it's not an internal voice. I I know my internal voices. Maybe this is a new one. I mean, I'm, you can hear my confusion about this. And it, it goes on. You do discuss yeah. that in the book quite a bit um, in a really subtle way because I think for many of us who have had these experiences with plant medicine, you hear something, you get a sense of a message, you get a sense of guidance that might come through, and then you are left wondering, 
where did that come from? Is that just exactly? Is that f- something that I'm projecting from an aspect of myself that maybe I don't have as much connection to? That the psychedelic experience is opening up, or is it coming from quote unquote outside of me? Is it coming from some an entity, an independent yes. thing that is somehow not me? And that's a really challenging place to be if you're coming to the world as a as a secular materialist person, as many of us are. Uh, yes. And particularly from your perspective, as a scientist, as a practicing doctor, as somebody who I assume was licensed in the world to practice in a certain kind of materialistly grant, materialist, is that a, is that a real world? Materialistly? No, it's not really. Materially, <laughs> in a materially grounded way. Yes, that that you know, I I didn't realize uh, that I that I had a worldview, and of course, it's a Western materialist worldview, and so to receive messages from a non-material intelligence is is this inner or outer you can hear i continue to struggle with this question it's not like i'm comfortably resolved many people are however i mean this is what the research revealed to me three quarters of the people in my study and i i had 81 in the study it was a good sized group about 54 of them said they had an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca and they didn't really report the kind of conflict that i have about them. But even with the conflict, I fulfilled the mission. In other words, I I rose up to do the project and felt um, both inspired and and helped along the way. Well, there was one point where I, you know, I was writing uh, the chapter where I included uh, neurological findings, which is not my strong suit. I mean. You know, when I went to graduate school, we didn't have neurological findings. You were trained so as a psychologist. I, I'm a psychologist, but you know, there was no psychoneurology back then, and so I was writing about. You know, I was at my outer edge of expertise, and I was saying to a friend, "I'm closer to the Dalai Lama than I am to a neurologist to to vet this chapter." And you know, a week later. I had a, a neurologist with experience with ayahuasca who was willing to read the chapter for me. See, that's really interesting to me. That yes. you're essentially finding in the scientific community people who have shared that kind of materialist training, uh, folks who have had these visionary experiences with plant medicine. And because they have... Coming, they're coming from that particular perspective. They're able to read the research data. They're able to read the grounded materialist material that you've got through a different lens with greater understanding. Is that yes. a fair way to yes. put it? Right. That's correct. And I, I, you know, I can tell you a, a little story. You know, I spend the winters in California, and I'm old friends with Houston Smith's widow. I spent early years at Esalen with Houston Smith's daughter, so I'm kind of a one of the you know extended family members. And so she was having sort of a salon, and this uh, cognitive scientist, the same one, was at this dinner party, and he was preparing to go to a professional meeting and talk about, uh, actually read from a book he had written that describes the mind as not 
materially located in the brain. And I have to tell you, he was terrified to stand in front of his peers and read this non-materialistic position. We don't know a lot about how the mind works in terms of its relationship to the brain, but the professional field is just beginning to open up about considering a more expansive view of the mind beyond the biological brain. This is really pretty cutting edge in terms of like... Well, he was, yeah. he was pretty terrified. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he's, he's terrified because he's, I'm assuming, concerned that he may get blacklisted. Absolutely. Right? This is a this is a Berkeley professor, by the way. Yeah. Even <laughs> yes. in Berkeley, you don't have to be yes. in, you know, Indiana or Idaho to feel like you're going to get blacklisted because no, you're expressing. Even Berkeley. Yes, there you go. <laughs> um, you actually talk a little bit in the book about scientism as a a way of seeing the world as a philosophy, ontology that sees things so materialist materialistically. I can't get that word right today. That any kind of opening and a public acknowledgement about your personal spiritual experiences effectively disqualifies you as a rational, intelligent person whose judgment can be trusted. Yes, I, I would say I've disqualified myself. You did. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Because, uh, you know, even though I don't really understand the phenomenon I experienced, I certainly followed the advice I felt benefited by the relationship with a plant spirit. I mean, I, it's not like I understand this, but I, I also experienced uh, really and continue to experience really important therapeutic benefits. That's one of the things that's very unique about this particular plant medicine is, is that it's incredibly uh, therapeutic. Well, so taking that leap for you, you'd been a professional in the the world of psychology for decades, you had a reputation. Yeah. You knew how you were being presented, how you presented yourself to the world. And then you're putting out this book and doing this kind of research that in a way kind of unmasks you as someone who may not necessarily belong. What did that feel like for you? Well, I, I first of all, I had the advantage of being at the end of my career. So I cared less. And secondly, the voice, Grandmother Ayahuasca, told me to involve an old friend of mine in the research. This is during a ceremony. I'm having a conversation and You're I'm sort direction. of like... You're getting direction. At very specific. Call Lee. Very specific. His name is Lee Gorell. And I, I hear my own voice like a, teen, a stupid teenager saying, well, I already talked to him. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm, yeah, this is not my highest, my finest moment in, in, in a ceremony. But the and voice, the voice had the voice knew better. Persists. Yeah, uh -huh. She says, no, call him. She was very kind at that point. There have been other times she's not so kind. She was very patient. No, call him again. So I call Lee again. And Lee was my research mentor's mentor. And he's a very prestigious psychologist, nationally known, who is now 90 years old. So when he did the study with me, he was in his mid-80s. I basically called him and said, Lee, Grandmother Ayahuasca told me to involve you in the study. And he said, I, there was a little pause, and then he said, I'd be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> and so we worked, of course, closely. I mean, we knew each other well. We'd, you know, he'd watched me. 
um, grow up in a research office, basically. So he'd known me since I was in my 20s. And we always wanted to work on a project together. I mean, who knew it would be this project? And um, I even had explicit instructions about the um, interpretation of the data analysis, because there's always more than one way to look at it. And we got statistically significant findings. I don't go into this in the book because it's uh, it was <laughs> my editor considered it boring, but it's in a published research article. And I compared people who used ayahuasca in North America to Catholics who were on a very traditional Catholic retreat for a weekend. And they both filled out the same kind of mystical uh, questionnaire. And the ayahuasca users were um, had greater joy in life. That was one of the variables. And also a, a stronger score on relationship to the sacred. And I thought, well, that's great. They come out stronger than the Catholics. I mean, what more could you ask for? It was like, it's like ah, a sports competition in my mind. That's so funny. The message I got was... These are, you know, these might be statistical findings, but they're not clinically that different. They're not, it's, you know, it's, it's the scores themselves are not that different. So again, I called up Lee and I tell him, I got this message, you know, can we relook at the data analysis interpretation? And, you know, he, and he said, sure, you know, give me a couple of days because he's a very thoughtful, careful man. I mean, he's won lifelong contributions to psychology from the American. American Psychological Association. He held a very high office in the VA and with the American Psychiatric Association. So he's very prestigious and careful. And he came back to me and he said, you know, she's right. Did the research show that the people who were doing ayahuasca were a little more spacey? No. Or no? Like a little more like ungrounded in any way as one? There's in turn, And I ask this because the popular group think about people who do psychedelics is that they might not be as grounded, that they may not be as effective in the world in what they do, that they may be have a, a more tenuous relationship to the real challenges of life. And I'm wondering if you saw anything like that in the research. I saw results. nothing that indicated that. I didn't ask, you know, I'm not sure what variable to ask for in that. These were people who um, the, the average level of education was a master's degree. This was not a normal group of people. These were highly educated professionals. They were as likely as the Catholic retreatants to be involved in a weekly spiritual practice. When you say weekly spiritual practice, you mean like a meditation? Tai Chi, meditation, okay. yoga, something. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was nothing that indicated that kind of airiness. You know, and there there was a recent article that was a, an international survey looking at people who have used a, a wide range of psychedelics, and uh, they came out looking pretty healthy. As as a matter of fact, healthier than the non psychedelic users. So this fits with the therapeutic ap applications of psychedelics. The Medicines themselves open up a healthy flexibility in the personality, uh, an openness, an openness to change that allows people to function in a better way in the world. So I think that old prejudice sort of of psychedelic users are flighty and not grounded may not be accurate at all. Did you grow up with a connection to spirit 
in any way in a religious background, any kind of religious background? You know, I, I have to admit, yeah, I, I didn't understand this wasn't normal, but my mother um, was a member of the rabbi study group, which was, you know, a philosophical rabbi study group. She was on the board of a Quaker meeting and she attended a, un, a UU, Unitarian Universalist church. Oh, I love it. She was weaving together some different strands there. Yes. And so this was certainly an interest of hers. And she would take off now and then to, to go down down the shore, which places me in Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia. She would go down the shore to look at the waves. This was the explanation to her child. Uh-huh. You know, when I was a child, <laughs> where's mom? Well, she's down the shore looking at the waves. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so I grew up with this orientation. And so when when I went to Esalen, I was all of 21. What brought you to Esalen? Well, you know, I was passionately following the the minute strands that I could find of mystical experience, that place where Eastern religion and Western psychotherapy seemed to meet in a mystical confluence that, that seemed to be calling me. And I was reading Alan Watts. You know, I was searching. I was, you know, I was in college, but nothing was relevant other than this kind of search. And uh, it was the early 60s, so this kind of search was not easy. Even in a large university, I was at Boston University, I found my way to people who referred me to Esalen. And how did they describe Esalen back then? What would you... For people who don't know what Esalen is. You know, back then, Esalen was, uh, it had been in existence less than a decade, and they were offering workshops in what was then called the human potential movement. And it was this sense that we could be more than we are. And certainly it was um, where humanistic psychology was just beginning to move into transpersonal psychology. And Abraham Maslow was one of the leaders, and it was his research on peak experience that was really beginning to move the field of psychology into this other realm that really opened it up. So people like Alan Watts were there and Stan Groff and... Stan Groff wasn't even there yet. Oh, really? Alan Watts was so there. So you had a calling, you were, because the way you were, you were raised, you had a mystical sort of orientation. You yes. mentioned in passing you'd done some psychedelics around that time. You had a big opening and then you later became a psychologist in a much more traditional way. Well, you know... I had a couple of years at Esalen. I mean, the residential program lasted for six months, but um, there was 11 of us and most of us stayed on the staff there. And so I was there for a couple of years and uh, I always considered that my clinical training. So when I went to graduate school where I clearly didn't fit, because Esalen was so far ahead of the curve, the graduate schools had not caught up to Esalen. I decided that I was better off in a research program. And so I was I was sort of purified from the clinical training that goes on in graduate psychology programs. I wasn't exposed to it. I was trained as a researcher. The time at Esalen, we worked with the, the leading therapists in in the in the world basically in the country for sure and so i had exposure way beyond what the graduate schools had at that time so we worked regularly with fritz perls that was just a regular 
weekly event. And so I had this kind of unusual exposure. So graduate school felt it felt safer to be in research. So did you feel that you had to, in some way, not let your colleagues know about your background, the work that you'd done at Esalen, the sort of spiritual inclinations that you had in order to get legitimacy among your peers? I, I'm, I had to be most careful in graduate school. Once I had the degree, I was not. I didn't. I didn't feel I had to hide my background. But certainly in graduate school, when I say I was safer in research, it's because I was safer in research. My my what I had learned clinically at Esalen was not acceptable. Gestalt therapy was not considered legitimate back then. So that's where I had to be most careful. So it was later in your career that you came back to psychedelics as a as a point of real interest in your own your own personal life i guess well you know i totally stumbled into it um my daughter was in graduate school and so that householder period where you know all my energy was going to raising a child um was was clearly coming to an end uh, i was fine just in private practice i wasn't thinking of anything changing my life. And I was looking for a beach vacation. It was February. I was living in New Jersey. I thought, what a good idea. I should go to the beach. And um, I signed up for this retreat without understanding the buzzwords in the brochure. A beach retreat? uh, You were just looking for a place where you can go swimming on on some sand? Yes. Costa Rica. I thought, this is a nice beach. Uh Two days before I left, the person organizing the retreat called me and asked if I wanted to participate in a a ceremony. And I said, what ceremony? So she had to explain it was an ayahuasca ceremony. I I hadn't heard of that exactly, but I had I had bought one of Ralph Metzner's books on ayahuasca, his first book. That's really a collection of therapists, mostly describing their their ayahuasca experiences. I had it on my shelf because I liked the cover, but I hadn't opened it. And so, you know, I said to her, "Well, let me call you back in a day." And and I read the book in 24 hours. Called her back and said, "Oh yes, sign me up." <laughs> You and, actually found an ayahuasca retreat by mistake. By mistake. And but, then but discovered Narby, that in fact Jeremy you had... Jeremy Narby was there. He was giving lectures. I had no idea who he was. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you had the book on your shelf about ayahuasca, which you had not really yet read. Right. And the word ayahuasca did not appear in the ad. For the retreat. No. Oh, no. No, no. 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 Uh-uh. Okay. All right. No, just, just, no. just asking, you know. I know. Uh-huh. I know. So, you know, I stumbled into it, but the timing was perfect. How, was that the beginning of several ceremonies you had? Or this was, you had that one experience that one time and that was okay and that was enough? Or what opened up for you uh, at oh, that time? Oh, no, no, no. I came back from Costa Rica and I organized all my friends into a group to go the next winter. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, so you were all in. I, ca- I came back and said, this is the fountain of youth. <laughs> oh, my God. Brilliant. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, just to ask, did you have an easy time of it? The first time I had a, there? Yes, I. It's never easy, but I had a you know a rocket ship blast off mystical experience, and so it was uh, 
a wonderful experience. And I felt like, you know, I was in my early 60s. I felt like all my joints had been oiled. So I gathered up my nearest and dearest old hippie friends, and we went the following winter back to Costa Rica, and I had a terrible time. Oh. I had a really bad, bad time. What where I Well, you know, you never know what you're drinking, so God knows what was in this mix. I pretty much got stuck in my core psychological issue, and I basically felt like I'm dying my uh, life force is being drained out of me, and I was. Ex- and these people are trying to kill me. Oh God! There were two shaman, a shaman's help, a couple, two two shamans, two shaman helpers. They were all trying to kill me. So when they finally realized I was having a hard time of it, and they came over to you know blow tobacco smoke, I thought, well, for sure they're trying to kill me, and oh my I God. basically. And I'm not a warrior, so I sort of just keeled over and gave up. I didn't die, but, you know, the next morning when I got up off the mattress I had fallen onto, people took a look at me and immediately started doing healing work on me because I was just in terrible shape. I, I did a bunch of different things, acupuncture, you know, a whole bunch of different things to try and clear this energy and 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 get this out of my system. And and I did the psychological work that was brought up with this. And uh, but I would say it was seven or eight months later that a friend of mine who's trained shamanically did some clearing work with me, and and that's what cleared the final energy out. She did it over the telephone. Yeah, tell me, I'd like to hear about the actual experience. So what does it mean to have a shamanic clearing for people who have, for those of us who have not yet had that experience? She's trained uh, by Alberto Villodo. Alberto Violdo. Yeah, sure. Violdo. Yeah, yeah I wish I could also pronounce guest, his last a, name. Yeah, he's a guest on the podcast as well. That one's coming up. Yes. Yeah, so she had been all through his training programs. She cleaned out this is not going to explain it any better, make it any more palatable. She cleared out my chakras over the phone. Uh, Uh, How did that feel? (laughs) She had me send these, what I considered energy maggots that I experienced during the ceremony. She had me send them up to the light. That was the final sort of sweep through of my energy field. And I sent them up to the light and was kind of free of them. How did you experience sending them up to the light? It's pure intention, but I could feel them sort of streaming out and up. Out where? Yeah. Isn't this interesting? It's so hard to describe. It's not like it's certainly out. It's more out of my energy field than my physical body. I mean, I'm coughing after the flu, so that's clearly out of my physical body. This was as if something was leaving my energy field. Some energy configuration was leaving my energy field and going up out into the universe, up toward the light. So it was pure intention and and imagination and and visualization. So releasing it up to the light as an intention, how does that feel different than just getting it the hell out of you and sort of exercising it? Well, I guess it is an exorcism of some sort. I think she would say she did an extraction. 
I think the the point is when you want to get rid of something like this, you want to make sure it doesn't latch on. This sounds really crazy. Oh, no, no, no. This sounds no more crazy than half oh, the really? things we already talked about. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, it's sort of like this is not something to be recycled. This is something to to actually offer into into sort of the fire of transformation. Um, so whatever this energy was, I didn't want it to land anywhere else. And to send it to the light keeps me out of, you know, trying to do something harmful to this energy, which is not relevant particularly. It's very difficult for me to talk about this kind of whatever this is that's neg- that's clear i had no doubts it was it was negative i mean i i literally felt it was trying to kill me in the next morning when i said you, you know people took one look at me and began doing energetic healing on me the morning after the ceremony is they were the shaman's helpers who who immediately started working on me to help me. And so the very people I thought were trying to kill me actually were trying to help me. It, it was a very healing experience in itself. It was a, what's called clinically a corrective experience. The very people I thought were trying to kill me were, the, the reality check was they immediately tried to help me. And so that that in itself as a corrective experience began to chip away at, you know, my paranoid structure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, once you had done the clearing with the shaman, was there a level of of healing that you hadn't been yes, able to reach before? Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I I can talk about an, another experience I had in a Santo Daime ceremony. The Santo Daime. Can you tell folks who may not That's know that is? That's one of the um, syncretic churches that originate out of Brazil, and it's a it's a syncretic mix of Catholicism indigenous ayahuasca use, and um, mediumship from the Umbandu religion from Africa. Umbanda. I think it's actually Umbanda. 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 Thank you. So this is um, a church that is actually legal in uh, Oregon. And there's a, in, in terms of religious freedom, and they use ayahuasca as a sacrament. There are a number of other churches around the country where um, they're working with the the DEA in importing their uh, sacrament, the ayahuasca, into the country, and they have a legal right to do so. So there's real um, legal recognition of this church as a legitimate church. And part of the tradition is the men are on one side of the room and the women are on the other. So for six hours... 
you're facing the opposite sex and and you can see each other struggling with the experience, however it is, and um, working on themselves during the during the the church service, basically. And what was most meaningful for me in this experience was the great compassion that arose in me for the men across the room. You know, rather than seeing them as potential enemies of some sort, you know, in that paranoid structure, I was able to see them as suffering and working on themselves and doing their best, just as we all were. So it was this arising of compassion. And I I have to say that has stayed with me. So that also contributed to breaking up of that bad experience I had as a child. So these were experiences you were having with ayahuasca before you decided to go ahead with the research project. No, no, it was it was you know part of the research project. I felt I should experience uh, how ayahuasca is being used, and that's what led me to the church. You'd had a profoundly beautiful experience with ayahuasca the first time around. A year later, yes. you go with friends, have a less than optimal experience that takes eight oh, no. months for you to right. recover from. Yeah. What makes you want to go back to ayahuasca after that? What makes yeah, you feel that this Yeah, I, I ask that, that is... every time. <laughs> and what was it? Well, you know, my whole life has been about pursuing that point of psychological and spiritual healing. And I really know of no better way to do that. I want to express how conventional or how conservative I am in my use of of the ceremonies. And that is that I'm with an authentic shaman, actually um, trained by his godfather from an indigenous village. And so I'm in a very traditional uh, situation. Which lineage? Do you know which? It's two. There's a he was raised in a village in uh, Panama, so the, it's Embera tribe, mm-hmm. and then the Shuar, who I think are Ecuador. Right. So he's in in two lineages, but his godfather was from the Embera tribe, and so I feel a real connection to his lineage. I also don't know how to explain this exactly, but I feel very committed to not messing around with other energies. So I only work with this one shaman in honor of his lineage. It's, even though it's two, it's his, his background. And I experience his lineage often during ceremonies. And it's pure love. And so your own experience through these ceremonies helped you to understand how ayahuasca acts as a healing medicine as a way, as a modality that can be more effective, at least for the issues that you've been working through, than traditional Western psychology and the paradigm, the materialist paradigm for addressing these kinds of traumas that you had been trained in. And, I, I, you know, I've I had a lifetime of psychotherapy. I have to say this process of the ceremonies does something different. Often I will combine it with a psychotherapy session or, or two as, as needed because I, I need help working through something. You know, you often hear the line 
this is almost a cliche at this point, that one ayahuasca ceremony is the equivalent of, what is it, 10,000 hours of therapy? And I forget the 10 years, 10 years whatever. of therapy. 10 years of therapy. Um, you know, it's very powerful. And I really appreciate the, the level of, of therapeutic work that's possible with ayahuasca. But it does not do everything that psychotherapy does. And lots of times, um, I think more people uh, need the need the additional process of psychotherapy than are going for it. So yes, I know people think, well, you know, ayahuasca is my psychotherapist, but I have to say, no, there's other work that needs to be done. What is that other work? Can you describe how you see the difference between an ayahuasca ceremony and actually a therapeutic session with a therapist? You have to understand, I've had so much psychotherapy and spent my life in psychotherapy sessions that this is not because I ran to a therapist, but because I caught it. So immediately, you know, the morning coming out of an ayahuasca ceremony, I had a dream. And in the dream, I brought a cobra in a Trader Joe's canvas shopping bag into an apartment where my friends were staying and there was a mother cat with with you know a litter of kittens uh-huh. this is this this is the setup in this dream i mean you know what happens next so of course the cobra jumps out of the shopping bag and you know begins trying to eat the kittens and it did crunch one down my friends lock themselves in the bathroom and i'm trying to rescue the other kittens so the the next day i'm processing this dream now as a psychologist i'm 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 you know it's the next day but i've had some breakfast i'm you know pretty much 80% back to my normal functioning. And I'm thinking about this dream. And I say to myself, a cobra comes into an apartment. Now that's not the dream. Do you hear the difference? I brought the cobra into the apartment. Oh, right. In a shopping bag, no less. Right. Different level of responsibility. And so I get a chance to look at all the ways I choose to create a dangerous situation for myself and then try and save the kittens or, or try and save myself, try and save vulnerable people, vulnerable people, which is my life's work, right? My professionalism allowed me to catch my distortion. Right. Now, not everybody's going to catch that kind of a subtle distortion. And then what, and that's the key to that dream, what it means. Yep. And so that's why people need to write down their dream and take it to a therapist. So you, know, so you have the training as a therapist to bring that kind right. of analytic attention to right, the to dream, catch to it. catch it. The real depth process of integration that happens in psychotherapy is not being talked about. There's a lot of talk about integration, but they really just mean journaling, walk in the woods, you know, take it easy for a couple of days. It's not the really depth work that's possible. And so therapy after an ayahuasca session is about maximizing the opportunity, but it's also about catching distortions and how we can sometimes, it's, it's a different form of inflation, think we've worked on something when we really haven't. And I, I just want to add, you know, I caught my distortion in my dream And then I have to say, I also 
talked with a number of friends who are lifelong therapists, and we kind of went over, I went over this together with them. That's not the same as psychotherapy, but these are dear friends who know my whole history, and we worked on it in a, in a, at a whole other level. So, you know, it, it unfolded more than just that morning inside my head. You know, I also did it in dialogue with a couple of other therapists. You received, as you mentioned in the book, as you said before, a directive from an entity you describe as Grandmother Ayahuasca to really do some traditional research that one would do in order to understand what the therapeutic value would be of this plant medicine. Right. Can you describe that moment? You know... Here's my inflation. What I heard the voice say was, do the research. And um, this came pretty early. I wasn't even questioning that I was hearing a voice, but I was thinking, oh, do the research. Well, of course, I'm the one to do the research. You're a researcher. Exactly. I've got the background. I'm not limited by being part of a an academic situation. You know, I even had private funding to do the research. It was like, yeah, I'm perfect for this. <laughs> um, but most, I mean, that was the initial inflation. Then, of course, slogging through, you know, a three-year research study is a- another story. And I mostly felt like a foot soldier, you know, following orders. But it was really the only, the only directive I got was do the research, involve Lee Moore, and and rethink the data analysis. So what was that voice that came to you? How do you describe that to yourself? Most of the time, the voice has been very matter of fact and very external. I, I mean, whether or not, how, how I make peace with this, I don't know. But my experience is it's a very matter of fact voice, very external, not not overly warm, but certainly not cold. Did it ever name itself as Grandmother Ayahuasca? No, no. So you're getting these very strong directives from a voice, a female voice. You're sharing this with the shaman. The shaman might even agree, oh, that's Grandmother Ayahuasca. You're talking to right. other people. Right. Or similarly going, oh, that's Grandmother Ayahuasca. Did that help? to create a sense of like who Grandmother Ayahuasca is for you? Yes. Now, I I have to tell you, last, I think it was last fall, I was on a panel and Jeremy Narby was on the panel. And I talked, of course, about hearing a voice and Grandmother Ayahuasca. And he gets up after me and he says, he talks a little bit and then he goes in for the kill. And he says, um, you know, there is no Grandmother Ayahuasca. The image for ayahuasca is a snake. And, you know, he talks more about this, that the indigenous people see a snake, not a grandmother. Then he comes down and he sits next to me and he says very sweetly and politely, was that okay? (laughs) Jeremy Narby is the author of The Cosmic Serpent. He's an anthropologist and very deep in his... And uh, very polite. Very very sweet and polite, (laughs) uh, but also very knowledgeable about uh, indigenous cultures that uh, work with ayahuasca in the Amazon. Yes. So I have to acknowledge that some indigenous cultures, you know, have different visions for visualizing the spirit, the plant spirit as, as a plant teacher. What is it? Is it a snake? It is a grandmother. What is it? 
you know, I think Grandmother Ayahuasca is in that range of categories, but obviously the cosmic serpent is also, but not everyone visualizes her the same way. So you decided to go ahead with this research project. How did you get it going? Well, you know, the first step in developing any kind of research questionnaire is you meet with people who know more than you do. So I met with a number of different Western shamans, but people who had been trained by an indigenous shaman. So I got the most authentic people I could find. And I developed a questionnaire based on their advice. And then I also included a questionnaire that was being used at Johns Hopkins psilocybin research that came originally from, you know, the Good Friday research. Walter Pankey. Walter Pankey, thank you. Yeah, back in the early and, 60s. Right, that looked at different aspects of mystical experience. It turned out to be 16 pages long, which is totally inappropriate for a research study. It's way too long. And I somehow um, never doubted that people would be willing to spend an hour or two filling out these quests, you know, the, the long questionnaire. And people did do that. And then they wrote me personal letters, you know, on top of it. I'm looking at the questionnaire now. You have it in the back of the book. And yes. you're asking questions like, was there a ceremonial ritual closing after the experience? If so, what was it? Do you have friends you talk about your ayahuasca experience with? Did you receive any messages or instructions during your most recent ayahuasca experience? If so, what were they? Yeah, these were essay questions. Essay questions, one after another. You never ask essay questions no. in research. <laughs> changes as a result this, of your ayahuasca experience. Any changes in your behavior? If so, what? Any changes in your use of alcohol? And then you have, you can number from one very negative to five greatly positive. My behavior has changed in ways I consider very negative, somewhat negative, no change, somewhat positive, greatly positive. My concern with my past has changed. Uh, my honesty with myself has. My concern with thoughts and feelings about my body has. My feelings of guilt have. So this is a very extensive... It goes on and on. ...set of questions about how people feel that their use of ayahuasca has impacted their life. Yes, and I was surprised how most people completing the questionnaire had had been in an ayahuasca ceremony that was spiritual in some way. You know, whether there was an authentic shaman there or not is not my my judgment, but that there was a, a spiritual intention and sanctity in the ceremony was was true for most of the people responding. So let's talk about let's let, let's talk about that for a second because yeah. Now that's I now that psychedelics are kind of entering the mainstream with a greater degree of acceptance. What I'm seeing in certain places are people writing, you know, say in response to the Michael Pollan book, How to Change Your Mind. Yes. Where he talks about mystical experiences or spiritual experiences that come from working with psychedelics. For people who have not really experienced that for themselves, some of them I'm seeing in reviews are asking questions like, wait a minute. What's the difference between a psychedelic experience and a real mystical experience? Are they the same thing? I took psychedelics when I was 15. 
went partying like crazy, ended up, you know, falling into a swimming pool. Somebody had to drag me out. They called my mother. She came to pick me up. I saw all kinds of things. I had a profound, you know, sense of like, look at how plastic and malleable all these objects are because they keep twisting and turning and the colors are really amazing. And then I woke up the next morning. I was like, whoa, I was really messed up last night. Is that a spiritual experience? No, <laughs> no. So, I mean, we have, we've learned again, the importance of set and setting, you know, the way the, the different psychedelic drugs are being studied. It's in very, very careful settings with good preparation and beautiful music designed, so selected specifically to encourage a peak experience. And so how would you describe that? peak experience is something different than tripping balls. <laughs> now that you mentioned that, you know, I never, <laughs> I never did that. So, you know, the setting really influences what's experienced. I think the intention as you enter, the, the, which is part of the set, what you bring to the experience and the focus on the inner experience, I mean, the way that these psychedelics are used in the current research studies is people have blindfolds on. They're in a darkened or lower lower light room that's set up to be lovely and calm and, and sort of spiritual, the room itself, and they have blindfolds on. So they're directed inward and they're prepped to kind of stay with their inner experience. That's a whole lot different from falling into a swimming pool at a party uh, or being at a concert where everything where you're 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 being bombarded with external uh, stimulation. So it's it, it, the the opportunity to have to go inside with these medicines is what seems to lead to the mystical experience. I'm going to pull something out of your book where you talk about the Walter Pankey research that was done in the early 60s, the Good Friday experiment, where seminarians were given a dose of, I think it was psilocybin, in order to see what kind of mystical experiences they might have. And what he did in order to create some rigor around the experiment was to describe what a mystical experience is. And that actual description has been a kind of touchstone for researchers ever since. And in the book you describe it, the Pankey developed a questionnaire designed to measure the universal qualities of mystical experience, which he named as unity, transcendence of time and space, deeply felt positive mood, sense of sacredness, noetic quality, paradoxicality, ineffability, and transiency. Do you say, however, please note that a, an experience need not contain all of these aspects to qualify as mystical. I found that pretty useful. So when we talk about psychedelic experiences, um, there often isn't that kind of discernment in the public discussion. And that's why I want to bring it up, because what you were interested in, in the research that you did, was how the mystical experience of ayahuasca was affecting people in the therapeutic context right? How it was helping them live a more fulfilling life. Is that fair? Yes. Yes. And I, I, I want to broaden this conversation because people spontaneously have mystical experiences all the time, but they don't talk about it in our culture. So the Pew uh, and Gallup polls ask people, have you had a, a spiritual or religious experience that you feel changed your life? 50% of the people say yes. So 
I don't know if that's technically a mystical experience or not, but it certainly has all the earmarks of one, that it's a, a significant experience that changes their lives. But we don't talk about this in our culture. And, and, and there's a variety of mystical experiences. Some people have them like an out-of-body experience, a near-death experience, a shared death experience when they're next to somebody who's dying. There are all kinds of unusual experiences that people have. But they're just, in our culture, they're rarely talked about. I remember one radio program with a an Air Force officer who had a near-death experience in an almost an airline crash. And he talked about how before that near-death experience, he had he he'd been married a long time and he told his wife he loved her on their wedding day. And he figured that was enough to last for 20 or 30 years. After the near-death experience, he said, now I tell her every day. Well, what if, you know, that's a, a huge spiritual experience that changes his way of being in the world and who he is in his most important relationship. But that's rare to hear somebody talk about it. And it's especially important because it was an Air Force officer. So you don't usually think of hearing about mystical experiences from from career military. But many, many people have them. And uh, they really, they're, they're what's called a discontinuous change. So it's not like what happens slogging through, you know, your family history and psychotherapy where you're working and growing gradually and gaining insight. It's an abrupt departure. There's like a huge leap. And this happens spontaneously as well as with psychedelics. And often it's a permanent change. People's values are changed from being materialistic, financially oriented, to being more altruistic. And there was one study that followed people up after such what was called a quantum change in the psychological literature. And they found that their values changed and remain changed during the follow-up, which was a decade later, 10 years later. So lives are changed all the time in ways that we don't understand from a purely therapeutic point of view. And certainly we're finding that the psychedelic drugs reliably seem to occasion mystical experiences. Now, we don't really know what the mechanism of change is. How does the mystical experience lead to such profound philosophical and behavioral changes? We don't really understand how that, the mechanics of that and so that's kind of what's up in the research these days. We talked the other day about how we both know a good number of doctors, licensed practitioners who are working with psychedelics or working with sacred plant medicines in one way or another, have profound mystical experiences of this kind in their own lives. But when they speak about their work publicly with anything related to plant medicines, psychedelics, or spirit, they're filtering what they say pretty extremely so that they're not essentially outing themselves as woo-woo kooks, to put it. Or, or know, as doing something illegal. That barrier, the legal barrier, is a big one because it essentially 
decriminalizes connection to source, which is a pretty frightening place to be if you really think about it seriously. Yeah. I mean, that says something about the society that somehow connection to source is <laughs> will put you in jail or make you lose your job if people find out about it. Right. Well, the, you know, the people fighting for cognitive liberty, I think, basically take this position. But culturally, we, we have to say, you know, only certain states of consciousness are legal in, in the Western world. So it's really quite a powerful statement. It's a pretty powerful statement. And it excludes, you know, the psychedelic mystical experiences. You know, an, another fine little topic that, you know, I, I hesitate to mention, but you know, many of the researchers have their own experiences either before they became researchers, and this is why they're researching psychedelics, or as part of their research protocols, part of their training to do the psychedelic research, so that they have a more in-depth understanding of the medicines that they're studying. And I, I that's downplayed, but it's tremendously important. And it, it raises the question that I'm often asked as a therapist is that should I find a therapist who's familiar with ayahuasca? And I think I hedged in the book and I said something like, you know, there aren't enough therapists familiar with ayahuasca. So if you find one who is familiar with this kind of psychedelic or mystical territory, that's, you know, that's, you know, look for that person as well. But I have to say Something extra happens when you're working with a therapist who also has their own relationship with ayahuasca. And it is almost as if there's a third entity present so that both the client and the therapist are connected to the spirit of ayahuasca. And it's it sort of brings a connection from that world into the therapeutic encounter. This is not, you, you know, we're not going to see this too quickly in professional journals, but this is a, a phenomenon I've, I've have felt very strongly myself, and it's been confirmed by other people. And so these are subtle experiences that make all the difference in the world. And I think maybe if I were writing the book again, that might be one issue that I wouldn't hedge on. And I would say, look, look for, for someone who is connected to ayahuasca. I know it's more difficult, but see if you can find that person. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great to have you on the show. It's been a great conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Where can people find out more about your book and about the work you've been doing? Well, my website is listeningtoayahuasca.com and people can reach me through that website. Great. And the book is available from New World Library um, and it's now out in paperback. And from Amazon and Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank really you. Thank you. Thanks again to Rachel Harris for being on the podcast. And thank you for listening. If you like what we're doing on The Evolver, please share these episodes with your friends and leave a comment on iTunes. Your iTunes reviews really do make a difference in how many people we can reach. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. 
Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And our email is theevolver at evolver.net. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the entire Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song, and our interstitial music is Sunu by The Human Experience and Rising Appalachia from their album Soul Visions. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.